Galatians 4. We're going to pick up verse 8 this morning, where we left off from last week. Paul is changing his tone this morning from one of apostolic authority speaking to the Galatians to more of a very personal, pastoral, even parental concern as a father would have concern for his own children. And and so let's stand with us to our feet in honor of God's word. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a body ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about. So, Lord, as we come to this in your letter, Lord, I I humbly ask that you would remind us of those in our life that are at the brink of turning from you, and maybe they already have. They have a worldview that will kill them. And Lord, today, would you help us understand from this text a very simple but difficult, almost impossible without your help way that we must confront them in love and with the gospel. We ask for your strength and your wisdom now in Jesus' name. Be seated. I saw a movie one time, and it was, it was one of those movies that that you watch and you get about two-thirds through, you're sitting there going, just not real sure why I'm even watching this thing. You know, I'm not sure where it's going, but I just can't quit watching it for some reason or another, you know. I think it was called, might have been Into the Wild or something. It's got to be, the point of the movie, which it took me almost the whole movie to try to figure to figure out where it was going, um, but was a young man who rejected the establishment, he, he was against the government, he was against rules, he was against all the, all the things of uh, the normal environment, and he had a dream of what it looked like to be free, 
So he had this in his mind, and so he he set on his journey. I'm going to go to Wyoming or somewhere out in the middle, and I'm going to live in the wilderness, no rules, no, just be one with nature, and that'll be freedom. So he locked it in his mind. He began on his journey, and the whole movie just tracks this encounter with people as he goes on this journey. One person after another he runs into, and these people would love him, would invest in his life, and give him a place to stay, and offer him jobs, and all this through the whole movie. He finally arrived at his destination, the backwoods of Wyoming or somewhere, no, nothing around, just him and nature. And that which he thought would set him free gradually killed him. The end of the movie was sort of depressing and dark as this guy lays in this old school bus that he found out in the woods dying of starvation the weather dead got cold he couldn't find food and then, and as he began to fade away the movie began to play back in his mind all of these people that he went through in life that loved him and that cared for him and that what he thought would set him free cost him his life. Never have quite got over that movie because is it not true that some people, even today in our lives, in our families, in our friends, have a worldview that's killing them? What we see here is Paul's grave concern. That's, that's what's happening to the Galatians. Remember, they started well. Paul came, he evangelized them, they believed by faith, and now they have bought into Judaism, which is the Judaizers taught, yeah, you can, you can take Jesus, but you've got to take the law, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to be circumcised. And he's concerned because they bought into this. Now they think they must be just, they're justified by the law. And so he says, you're, you're in danger, and so he changes his tone. Concern, pastoral, do you understand that we as a church, not just me, are all supposed to have pastoral concern for people, just like we do for our own children? So what are we supposed to do? This is really, the, this is really a so what message. What are we supposed to do when we see someone that we care about and they've put on a pair of glasses that's killing them, it's leading them to destruction, much like that young man as he walked to his death in search of freedom. What are we supposed to do? Well, Paul gives us a very simple guideline here in this text of what we're supposed to do. So Paul's concern, and listen, you need to feel this this morning. Paul's concern was that the Galatians could be, in fact, not born again. And his soul will be in agony until he sees Christ formed in. That is, until he sees them faithfully following Jesus Christ. And so he expresses his concern. You see, he expresses it both biblically and directly. It's not, it's not enough to say, I just, just feel concerned. Paul expresses it to him. Look at verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not gods. And so... Here's what he does to start with, very simply. He, he confronts the person, but he's going to do it biblically. And here's what he does. He says, you need to remember 
who you were apart from Christ. So here's what he didn't do. He didn't cut off his relationship with them. He didn't. He intensified it, if anything. We'll see at the end, he wished he could be there face to face. But he says, do you remember when you did not know God? In other words, and now context is important. So what these guys were, were Gentiles, remember? They were idol-worshiping pagans before they were saved. So let's look at this, 1 Thessalonians 1.9. I want you to see this. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living, true God. And so, remember, Paul was saved, and God says, the Lord says, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And that's what he did, but Gentiles, remember, it's a Greco-Roman culture, and they worship multiple gods. I read one, the goddess of nature, whereby the, the people would actually stand under a platform, and as they slaughtered animals, the blood of the animals would come through the platform and literally give the worshipers a bloodbath. That's how they worshipped. Remember, many of their gods was gods of fertility and all these things. He's saying, remember, that's who you were. Do you remember? You were, you, that's who you were, but not anymore. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 4. It says, therefore, as to the eating of foods offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. He said, this is what he's telling the Galatians. Don't you understand? You used to worship idols, not that they were gods. Now flip over a couple chapters to chapter 10 and look at verse 19. It says, what do I imply then? The food offered to idols is anything and that an idol is anything. Verse 20. No, I imply that what pagan sacrifices they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So he, he goes to this person who has turned and says, Don't you remember? That's who you were. You were an idol-worshiping pagan offering idols, offering sacrifices to demons. But now, now look at verse 9. Remind them, number 2, remind them of who we are in Christ. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be, to be known by God. And so, now this is important. Remember what expositional preaching does. You just read the text. Let the truth of the text come up and, and accept it. What's the focus here? That they have come to know God, or that God has, has known them? Look at the second. See the or rather? That's your, that's your focus. He said, or rather, God has come to know you. That's the accent. God's initiative in the knowing. Little small sidebar. If that reality, that God knew you first before you knew them, that you only love him because he first loved you, if that doesn't give you comfort and strength, how is it going to give anyone else comfort and strength? This is what he goes. He goes back, he says, remember. Now, what is, it, what is he pointing to? There? This word knowing is an intimate word. 
If you read the Bible months, you know that oftentimes even sexual relationships was called knowing. That goes all the way back into the Hebrew, the word yada. It was knowing, it was choosing, it was intimacy put to one. It was this, that someone, do you remember that God has put his affection on you? This is the adoption picture. Remember we talked about that last week. That in adoption, someone chooses to put their affection on a child. That's what he says. Don't you remember God? Don't you remember that God put his affection on you? He chose to. Don't you remember that? Amos 3.2, God speaking of his chosen people says this. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Do you see that? What he's saying? All the families of the earth. I chose to put my affections on you. So this is what he's saying to the Galatians as they turn from Christ and turn to something else. He says, don't you remember? Wake up. Don't you remember who you were? Now, don't you remember that God has set His affections on you? And then what does He do next? Look at verse, end of verse 9 and verse 10. He calls them to repent. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Those slaves you were once. You want to be those slave, a slave like that again? That's what he's saying to them. See, this word, turn back again, is the word we get conversion. It means to return. So when someone converts, when someone repents, they're following after something other than Christ. They've got a hold of that. They let go. They turn. They follow Him. Here's what he's concerned about. Here's the graveness. They have turned, and now they're looking back that way. He's saying, what are you doing? How can you, once you've experienced this, turn back to these, what he calls, elementary principles? We saw that last week, didn't we, in verse 3? If you've got your Bible, some, some translations may say spirits. That's a good translation, too. Principles are spirits. This is pointing back to that demonic the demonic of idolatry. <laughs> he blew my socks away here in just a second when he said, this is amazing what he's saying, but he's saying this conversion, it sounds a lot like 2 Peter 2.22. Listen to what he says. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. You see the two words, returns. Same word. Why does a dog return to its own vomit? Why does a pig go back to the mud? Because they're a pig. You see his concern for them. He says, I'm concerned that in fact you haven't been born again. Why are you returning back? So he's calling them to repent. To stop. Don't do that. Don't you remember? You're going back to these elementary principles and look up at verse back in chapter 4 of Galatians verse 3 we read this last week in the same way we also when we were children were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world so he's saying that this paganism that they once were a part of they're going back to you're going back to paganism why would you do that it's interesting isn't it well this this didn't win him any friends in this statement here's what he's saying you're going, you're embracing Judaism after you have put your faith in Christ alone. 
is simply you embracing another form of paganism. You used to go to the fertility gods and offer all these sacrifices so that you could please God and that He might bless you and you thought you were more satisfied with the fertility God. And now, though you have professed faith in Christ alone, now you're simply going back to idolatry and saying, I can please God by what I do. He says, just another form of paganism. Why would you go back to that slavery when Christ has set you free? Not only that, look at verse 10. He's saying, you're just not going back to the Old Testament law and thinking that that somehow makes you right before God. They're, they're embracing the Old Testament calendar. He said, you're, you observe days and months and seasons and years. These false teachers has even got you embracing the Old Testament calendar. You even think you've got to keep, you're keeping all these things that that's making you right before God. Turn with me to Colossians 2.16. Because we can, we can get lulled into this easy. He says, you're missing a point. The whole point. Colossians 2, 16. Let's look at 16 and 17. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festivals or new moon or a Sabbath. Look at verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. See what he's saying? This, this is ultimately about Christ. So what's a modern example? Well, let's just take the Lord's Day. Sunday. We're New Testament believers. We worship on Sunday. We, we, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday as New Testament believers. And here's what can be true. We could be a worldly pagan where we think Sunday is just our day. It's the day we do what we want to do. It's about me. I do what I do. I want to do what I do. And that's what I'm going to do. That's what worldly people do. And You can be doing that. Here's what he's saying. This will, and, and here's what he's saying to them. You can be a Judaizing pagan too. Known by the, by the Lord's day by saying, I don't do this and I don't do that. And you do. And shame on you. And God's happier for me because of what I don't do. He said that's just another form of paganism. It's simply swapping one idol for another. And so he leans in, you see. Legalism and license are closer than you think. Because here's what the legalist mind does eventually. I got my religious routine down. What's a little porn going to hurt? I got this down. Says these people are in dangerous trouble, and so you got to tell them. You're calling them to repent, but he's also telling them they're in they're in grave danger. So you tell them you're gravely concerned about them. You don't just keep it to yourself. Look at verse eleven. I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. I'm afraid that all this that we did and all the evangelism and all the discipling and all the church planting and all this that it's all been for nothing you see he's raising a question about what about their salvation why because he's already told them to embrace the law ends in a curse because you can't keep the law so if you embrace this if you follow this path it only leads one way you say hold on a second Preacher, 
We're not allowed to question someone's salvation, are we? Let's just look at what Paul says. Galatians 5, just over a page, maybe in your Bible, verse 2. It says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2 says perseverance is required in the Christian faith. He's telling them you better wake up and return to the gospel because you're in danger if you fall down this path. You see, genuine conversion can't be relegated to a one-time event. In other words, we must not confirm someone is a Christian if they are not in fact actively following Christ. We cannot. We cannot give confidence to someone who says, I prayed a prayer when I was eight, but I live like hell every day. But praise God, I'm saved. The Bible can give you no security of your salvation. And Paul doesn't either. Paul says they're in danger because they are in fact not following Christ. Simply the Holy Spirit simply produces something in His children. And so, at this point we see... Do you feel it? You're going to have this confrontation or this conversation with someone that you care about and that you love. That this, this is rather uncomfortable. Right? Someone, someone can shake her head or something. Give me something. <laughs> yeah, smile. I'll take it. This is uncomfortable. But listen, we've got to put some tension in here because Paul does. The Bible has no place in it. Christianity has no place in it for mean, arrogant Christians. It's not what he's doing. Many people thought Jonathan Edwards was mean. But Jonathan Edwards realized the reality of hell. And so out of love, he had to warn people that were headed there. So God doesn't call us to be mean nor arrogant. He calls us to do this in a broken concern. So out of grave concern, he gives this warning to them. He has this conversation, but he does it with grace and compassion. So he's not just beating them over the head. He's, he's entering into a conversation. He has an abiding relationship with them. He's telling them to remember who you were. Remember what God did. You need to repent. You need to come back. This is dangerous. This, this is places where you're at. a dangerous place to walk. It only ends in one way. And now he, he leans in. Look at verse 12. I want you to feel the tone change here. Brothers, verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. So he, he calls them brothers. It's a warm, I entreat you. That means plead, appeal. I appeal to you. So he's not, even in this first, yes, it's an imperative. But you see, he doesn't say, you need to do this. He's saying, brothers, I plead with you. Become like me. I became like you. So what does he mean? He's appealing to their common relationship in Christ that they had. He says, be like me. What does he mean? He's a Jew. What is he saying? Be like me. Live like a Gentile. That is, live free. Live like a free son. Don't live, don't live like a slave. 
Because if you're in Christ, you are a son. Here's what he's saying. Can you say this today to someone? I am so satisfied in Christ. His intimacy is, means more to me than life. My joy is all wrapped up in making Him look good. And that's, I just want you to be like that. So here's the question. Am I living a life worth imitating? Do others have access to my life? You see, this has already been true. Paul says, I only give you the gospel. I give you me. This is why he can write a letter and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me because I have lived life among you. And I have lived a life worth imitating. It's not a perfect life. It's a humble, repentant life. Oh, he says, live like me, live free. I, remember, I became like you. What does he mean by that? It's an important Christian principle. Paul came to Galatia as a, as a Jew. And he laid down his Jewishness. And he identified with them. He he stood in their place. And no, that does not mean that he went into where they were offering to idols and had a bloodbath beside of them. That's not what he means. He means I laid down my Jewishness in order to present the gospel clearly. Listen, I met them where they are. I did not expect the pagans to come to me. I went to the pagans. I identified with you. I brought the gospel to bear in your life right where you were. And God has saved you. So he's appealing to this commonality, this place where they met each other. Walk like me, remember? I in humility put myself in your place. So we endeavor to see others like us. That is, free, adopted, child of God. But we must labor to become like them. We must go to them. We must identify with them. We must open our life and have, give them access to our life so that we may make disciples by them imitating us. You see, if we desire someone to have a Christian conviction, we must first exercise Christian compassion. So here's what he does. He reminds them... Of how they had had grace toward him. Because they had. And so you see what he's doing? He's engaging not just the heart. He's engaging the mind as well. Don't you remember? Verse 13. When I came to you. You know it was because of a body ailment that I preached to you. The gospel at first. He said you know. When I came to you. I didn't come to you. With this nice sermon. This well placed. And all the show. And all this. I was sick. You remember? I was sick as a dog. And we don't know. We don't have enough information to know what that is. And so we, there's no point in us saying maybe he, was, maybe he was blind, maybe he had malaria, maybe he's this, maybe that. The Bible doesn't really tell us. Here's the point. That his weakness wasn't a liability to them. It was a trial for them. Imagine. Imagine that I'm sick and hurting up here. And I'm trying to, think, you know, I'm trying to get over it. I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep a straight face. But Brent sees that I'm hurting. He's sitting there going, I wish somebody would give him ibuprofen or something. He's hurting. This is sort of, he's sitting there going, when I stood up before you, it wasn't with this eloquence. I was in pain. 
My weakness wasn't a liability to the work of the gospel. In other words, he says not only, did you show me grace and compassion in that moment? But you are receptive to the gospel, verse 14. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. He said, not only was you gracious to me, do you remember? But you didn't say, I can't even listen to you because of what you're going through. He said, the Spirit gave you receptivity. You received me as a messenger from God. You see what it says? As an angel, as Christ Jesus himself, you received me. You received the message. So he's focusing on the Holy Spirit that was working in them at that time. Don't you remember? But now, what does he do? Still in love, still in grace, still in compassion. He appeals to the truth. What happened? He says, verse 15, What has become of your blessedness? That spiritual work. If you look back in chapter 3, verses 1 and 5, it talks about the Holy Spirit's work in your life. He's already talked about that. He said, what happened to it? This work of the Holy Spirit that has changed you. And now, he said, don't you remember? If it would have helped me, you would have gouged out your eyes to help me. What happened now? Verse 16. What happened? That I came to you as a messenger from God and you showed me grace and you received my message. And, and now I'm your enemy? Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Listen to me, brothers and sisters. This is the truth of discipleship. This is the reality of engaging people with the truth. It will not make you popular. It will make you faithful. So is there a risk? Yes. But out of love and compassion for their soul, we must do it. We must engage them. We must warn them that they are in imminent danger. It is that worldview, those pair of glasses, that that young man, it was actually based on a true story at the beginning of the message, that he put on, that led him to his death. It is that same pair of glasses that are leading the Galatians to their eternal death if they follow it. And listen, it is not loving nor gracious to keep our mouths shut as our friends and our families walk slowly to hell. We must engage them. That's what love looks like. And if you don't understand it now, one day you will be a father and a mother and you will know what it means to protect your child whether they like it or not. To not just send them, let them walk in that direction. We must lay ourselves down. This is what he's saying. Warn them, they're in danger. And what this is very helpful, and you've got to apply this in every situation you might find yourself in. He gets specific. He gets specific. He doesn't just talk in broad generalities. He hones into the issue that's causing them to turn. And he says the issue is these false teachers. That's the issue. And you need to understand what they're doing to you. Verse 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you make much of them. You see, they were zealous rascals. They were. But there is a zeal without knowledge. 
that's dangerous. And it is alive and well. You simply have to turn on your TV to see it. You wouldn't have to go far to find it. You see, they even had a missionary zeal. Paul talked about it in Romans, talking about the Jewish people. Romans 10 verse 2, when he says, For I bear witness, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Listen, cults have zeal. Some of the most friendly, zealous people you're ever going to meet are Jehovah's Witnesses. They're zealous. Atheists have zeal. Send your kid to college and there will be a professor with zeal that teaches them. A completely different pair of glasses that they will offer them that's a whole lot easier to wear than the one that we wear. This is the danger there is a zeal without knowledge. But remember Matthew 7.23. Do you remember it? Jesus said there will be many people in my day that will come to me and says, Lord, Lord, didn't I heal people for, for you? Didn't I even cast out demons for you? And what will he say? I never knew you. I never set my affection on. Beware, there is a zeal without knowledge. Beware of those people who flatter you in order to shut you out. That's what he's saying. They're, they're nice. They're well-spoken. Beware of a church that centers its whole service around you. Because that makes us feel good. But it could make us feel good straight to hell. When's the last time a preacher preached on repentance? There's the test. Be careful when men, because see these well-spoken False teachers were making them feel good about themselves, but there was no Christ in the gospel. At the end, he says, they're just self-promoting. They're trying to isolate you. This is what cults do. You ever study them? They isolate the people, isolate them from the rest of society, cut them off, and they, and they, they blackmail them, they, they brainwash them in order to what? The next thing you know, they're following who? following that person. This is what he said. This is what they're doing. So You need to be aware of it. That's the problem. You need to get away from them. But verse 19, I think, is probably the most important. You can do all these things. But in 1 Corinthians 13, like it says, if you don't do it in love, you don't have anything. We must appeal to our unconditional love and commitment to see Christ formed in them. This is essential to our appeal. If we don't have this, we are going nowhere. Look at what he says. I want you to feel this. My little children, for, I, for whom I am again, listen, in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So he equates what he feels to these wandering Galatians as the anguish of childbirth. I don't know what that's like, but he uses the word anguish for a reason. I'm, I'm in the anguish. This is like childbirth. Listen, all over again. You see the word again? Paul considered himself their spiritual mother, their spiritual father. First Thessalonians 2 7 said he was their spiritual mother. 1 Corinthians 4.15, he calls those he disciples their spiritual father. And so what is he like? He wants, them to, he wants to see birth. What is birth? 
Is Christ formed in their life? That's what we want to see. Brothers and sisters and parents, do you see the clear teaching of the text? Is he relying on a past decision? No! What does he long to see? What is he in anguish about? To see Christ formed in their life. That's what he wants to see. And he says, I will not rest until I see it. I long to see. I will anguish over your soul just like I did before. And so to see birth, Christ formed in people's life, means me and you are going to have to be uncomfortable. We're going to have to live a life worth imitating. We're going to have to plan to open our house up so that, so that people can enter into our lives. Why? Because we want to see Christ formed in them. We want to see Christ formed in ourselves. And listen, I love the confessions. I love God's sovereignty. I love election. I love predestination, though I understand very little of any of it. I love it. I embrace it all, but we need not miss the point this morning. Christ's sovereign, creative, formational power in other, others' lives can never be divorced from our labor to see Christ formed in them. They are inseparably part of God's economy. God uses us to see Christ formed in others' lives. He uses us. And what is He doing? As we bring God's Word to bear, He brings new life. And as He brings new life, He sanctifies us. This is His economy and it works. And so Paul's in anguish because they're walking away. Lord, if I ask you, and this is the picture that's in me, this is how the anguish, understanding Paul's anguish came to me. If I asked you to raise your hands, and I'm not, how many of you here have ever experienced a miscarriage you would probably be surprised at the number of people that would raise their hand. Christina and I miscarried right before Jacob. And uh, it didn't take long for me to begin to think about this, that the pain came back. You see, when you lose someone in your life, the pain never really goes away. You don't know how to walk by faith, but the pain's still there. All that hope of holding that child speaking into her belly, and one day the child is stillborn. No life. Feel that. That's how Paul feels about them. He said, I'm doing this all over again. I thought the first time they brought life, but I'm afraid that, I've, that you've miscarried. That you've been stillborn. Because I don't see Christ formed in your life. And I, you need to know something. I will not rest until I see Christ formed in you. They need to hear that from you. Not in your notes. Verse 20. If you're taking notes. If at all possible, appeal to that person in person. You can't do this over text. So don't try. You must look at them in their face and you must tell them both the hard and the truth 
And you must call him to repentance. Yes, you must do it all. But it must be sitting on your unconditional love for them. Listen. It is no more biblical to give someone the gospel and not give them you than to give them you and not give them the gospel. If you take me, you have to take the gospel that comes with me. Yes, that's true. But it is not a biblical idea to simply be friends with someone and not bring the gospel to bear in their life. We are Christians, brothers and sisters, and so I ask you this morning, are you anguishing in labor and prayer over the lives of others for the sake of seeing Christ formed in them? We love Ephesians 4 as a congregation. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 says, And he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists, shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 13. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in what? Love. So who does the work of ministry in verse 12? We do. We do. The work of ministry is not the job of the pastor, of the deacons, or the elders, or anyone else on a leadership team. It is the job of us. It is the job of the leadership and the elders and the pastors and the deacons to equip. It is the job of us to do the work of ministry. The job of discipleship lays at the feet of every person who has been redeemed and adopted. It is what's worth you going home and clearing off your calendar for a second and say, how am I investing in the souls of people? Because much of we don't have, we're not agonizing. We don't feel the anguish because we don't have time for it. Paul's saying, I'm anguishing. Over you until I see Christ formed in you. Do you have brothers and sisters, friends and family that you feel that way? We must, before anything else, before we plant churches, before we birth new growth groups, before we do any new work, we must clear the table and ask ourselves, am I anguishing in labor over the souls of men for the sake of Christ being formed in them. That's first. God bursts the new work. God plants churches. He exponentially bursts growth groups and helps us go to autonomy where we can see gospel communities spring up all over this. But He will do it when we all labor over the souls of men and we do it together. And that way the whole church is both equipped and built up. And we do it, brothers and sisters, together. You cannot pass off to someone else what Christ has laid at your feet. 
And he lays discipleship at our feet. And so, brothers and sisters, I simply this morning call us to prayer. As a response, I call us to prayer. Do you need the gospel this morning? Maybe you're the one this is talking to. Maybe you needed the confrontation. Maybe you have embraced a, a worldview that's going to that's gonna destroy you and, and your children. Or, or what? maybe you need the gospel this morning. Maybe you just need to have that gospel conversation with someone else. And that's going to take some boldness. It's going to take some courage. The hardest people to share the gospel with is who? Family. <laughs> the hardest people. So what do we do? We pray and then we obey. Some of us might need to just repent that we've been sort of mean, arrogant Christians. We need to repent to God, and then we repent to the people that we've been mean to. That's the best witness you can be as a repentant Christian. But more than that, this is where I'm at this morning. I've got more people that I can hardly count on my mind. I'm anguishing over their souls. What do we do? He walked away and I can't catch him. What am I supposed to do? And so let's, let's go to prayer, brothers and sisters. As a response to this message, let us go to prayer and then let us obey. So let's pray. So Lord, we, we come to you. I don't know what's going on in the hearts of, of the men and women here. I have people, Lord, and they've walked away. It doesn't seem like they care, Lord. I can't fix them. I can't pull out the addiction. I can't fix the marriages. I can't make them be faithful. It's your work, Lord. Oh, if God's people would come together in prayer, anguishing over the souls of men, what would you do among us? So, Lord, hear our prayers, Lord, as we stand to our feet or sit in our chair or pray at the front or whatever it looks like Lord hear our prayer Lord and lead us to obedience Lord whatever that looks like maybe you're here and maybe you need a, a friend to pray with or even to go with you Lord would you let the church be the church because it is for the glory of your name that we all are walking and reflecting Christ in our actual life we do so because we are sons and daughters. We do so because we do not have to fight to be something we are. And we don't have to fight to keep something you've already purchased. So Lord, we come to you. Receive our prayers and receive our worship for the glory of your great name.